This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with award-winning journalist Marion Wilkinson. Marion joined me to discuss her book, The Carbon Club, how a network of influential climate sceptics, politicians and business leaders fought to control Australia's climate policy. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto this program, Marion Wilkinson. She is a multi-award winning journalist with a career that has spanned radio, TV and print. She has covered a multitude of topics, including politics and climate change, and has served as a foreign correspondent in Washington, D.C. for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. She was also a deputy editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, as well as executive producer of the ABC's Four Corners program, as well as a senior reporter for Four Corners. And uh, notably, Marion was also an environment editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and covered numerous issues uh, relating to climate change including the rapid melt of Arctic sea ice. And that was a joint investigation between the Sydney Morning Herald and Four Corners. Marion was also inducted into the Australian Media Hall of Fame in 2018. And more recently, just last year for 2020, the Financial Times named this book, The Carbon Club, in their top five environment books for 2020. So uh, I welcome Marion now and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Amy. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's just so wonderful to get a chance to speak with you and to talk about this book, The Carbon Club, which is just so extensively and forensically researched. And it seems like you professionally have been in a very, very prime and opportune position to be able to know and be across these issues and to have seen firsthand what happens behind the scenes and all of the players and the the politicking that goes on, having obviously been a foreign correspondent over in Washington and uh, had so many key roles here in journalism in Australia. And one of the things that struck me reading this book were some of the, or the multitude really, of connections between Australia and the United States, particularly in the realm of climate politics and climate change. So uh, first of all, I'd just love to hear from you about the background to this book and where the, the kind of research and the thinking came from and whether this seemingly from an outsider's perspective is something that has come from a, a great depth and also breadth of experience in a journalistic career that uh, spans so many different areas. Well, you know, it's funny, Amy, the core of this book really began when I had just finished up as a foreign correspondent in the US and it was through the Iraq war and the whole sort of war on terrorism. And an old friend of mine said that he was really interested in doing a documentary on climate change and would I help him? And I knew a little bit about it, but I hadn't spent a great deal of time on the subject. But given I was about to wrap up this stint in Washington, I took out a couple of months really and began digging around on what was going on in the US over climate change and how that might mirror or um, be in opposition to what was happening in Australia. Well, to my surprise, what I found was all these amazing connections back and forth between the groups opposed to climate change action or policy in the US and the organisations who are basically doing the same in Australia. But funnily enough, we presented this plan to the documentary producers of all these links and what we thought was really exciting and what role Exxon Oil was playing and what role in Australia uh, various corporations like Western Mining were playing. And the producers said to us, hmm, I don't know, you know, we think Kevin Rudd's going to be elected very soon and no one's going to care because climate change policy is just going to happen. You know, <laughs> all the sceptics will be gone. And uh, so essentially our documentary was put on the back burner. But that really sparked my interest. And I kept these volumes of documents 
on my shelf at home for years. And honestly, so many stories I did, especially at the Herald as environment editor, I would find myself looking back at these documents saying, oh, there's that guy again. Oh, mm. there's that company again. And so that really kind of, I guess, motivated me to eventually try and write a book about it. Well, that's exactly what this book was like for me, looking, oh, there's the same man that I saw mm. last chapter and there he is again and there he is as the leader of that organisation. And, and it wasn't even just one man, of course. There are so many really predominantly men for a great proportion of the story. It was only until we saw Penny Wong enter at one point that I saw a woman's name that was there and, you know, being a key part of the story, a key player. But of course, there is another woman who is a key player being Gina Reinhart, who would Absolutely. come up yeah, later on. Uh, let's start chronologically, though, with some of the men who do feature at the beginning. And one in particular who clearly does have a key role, and no doubt uh, not just because of his own views, but he is very influential and clearly held some key positions and had some key relationships with the Liberal Party. And that is businessman Hugh Morgan, who was chief executive of Western Mining Corporation, who you just mentioned before. And the book really starts out at this pivotal moment before the Kyoto Protocol was nutted out and agreed upon. And it takes us through in such fascinating depth about what happened at Kyoto and how that really set in train all of these effects that continued right through to when Rudd was there and clearly didn't wave his magic wand. But let's start with that person and also that pivotal moment of Kyoto and the role that certain business figures in Australia played in terms of setting the political debate or influencing that political debate around climate change when John Howard, then Prime Minister, was um, dealing with these issues. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right, Amy. Hugh Morgan was a really key figure. And I was very interested in exploring his role because, you know, he's always in political circles, I guess in the labor circles and in the trade union circles. He was seen as a bit of a kind of maverick, maybe a bit almost kooky at times, um, but definitely a, a, a sort of maverick figure. Weirdly, what I discovered, the more work I did on him, was that rather than being an outlier, a sort of a figure on the fringes, he was in fact absolutely central to the Liberal Party policy at this time on climate change. He had the ear of the Prime Minister, he had the ear of the Treasurer at the time, Peter Costello, John Howard, as you said, was the Prime Minister, he had enormous influence in business circles. And what he also did was that he had money. And that was critical, not only his own money and the money of Western Mining Corporation, but he could garner money from other major corporations to funnel it into the Liberal Party as donations, but also to funnel it into the first right-wing think tanks in Australia that were really putting the intellectual case of climate scepticism and opposition to Kyoto, the first major climate change agreement uh, of the 90s. And so he was absolutely pivotal and remained so really for, I'd say, two decades and well into the noughties, as they say. Mm. So, yes, he was very influential. And he had this, uh, I call him a kind of factotum. He was almost Hugh Morgan's right-hand man, a fellow called Ray Evans. And wherever I went in Washington when I was researching the book and interviewed uh, sceptics and promoters of the sceptic cause, every one of them would mention Ray Evans. And to them, he was like in a way more important than Hugh Morgan. And the reason was that Evans became the conduit really between Washington and Australia for these key right-wing think tanks to send thinkers back and forth, to send funds back and forth. And so he, 
under the guardianship, really, of Hugh Morgan, also became a key figure in the Liberal Party determining climate change policy. And there were a number of groups, and they all have, you know, varying names, that some that seem quite benign, but these groups over in the US, one including uh, the Global Climate Coalition, were also, you know, having strong ties back into Australia. And there were multiple instances of these groups where they had key figures that you go through in the book that had links back to mining, coal, oil, gas type interests, big business interests, really, who were very much against dealing with climate change in any significant way. One of the things that I really found interesting was your explanation about the kind of the rationale or reasons why some of these influential business people, particularly the men we're talking about right now, gave for actually not believing in climate change or having a a certain level of scepticism towards the science which they believed had not been settled. And um, I just wanted to quote something from the book. So you were talking about Hugh Morgan's own calculations about his company and the effect that uh, the Kyoto Protocol might have to his uh, company's bottom line and that they were looking at about a $100 million bill to meet the cost of their greenhouse gas emission reductions. And this was in the you know late 90s. But you do go on to say, quote, But Morgan's opposition to the new climate agreement was not just mercenary, it was deeply ideological. He saw environmentalism as a religious movement and the battle over climate change as the biggest threat to liberal private enterprise culture since socialism. And so I've got to say, you know, quotes like that and the way that you have analysed this situation and analysed responses you got from these men really interested me because it seemed to crop up on and on and on over and over and over that this was a deeply ideological almost religious in its zealotry type of issue that people just kind of felt emotionally heavily emotionally invested as well as financially and that there was this ideological sense of socialism versus capitalism and it was a bit striking to me to see these things being put up against each other because i just would assume that by the end of the 90s that whole cold war type of rhetoric would have been gone. So I wonder if you could comment on that, that kind of ideological element and this this idea of why people took the positions they took. Yeah, that was to me one of the most fascinating things because I wanted to understand what was behind all this. And there was no doubt that there were mercenary interests at stake and I don't underplay that in the Mm. book. Clearly people were motivated by you know, the value in their own companies and what they thought was valuable uh, in the industry. But there was also this deeply ideological uh, element to it. And I didn't quite understand this until I sat down with some of the leading thinkers of this within the Liberal Party, you know, the David Kemp's and the uh, Corey Bernardi's and that. And you could see, I could hear, you know, the passion Uh, in this and with someone like David Kemp too the intellectual passion that he brought to this argument which was that you know you might say it's about climate change but the way we saw it was that if we were to address climate change this would mean regulation on industry this was a backdoor way of the socialists of the environmentalists being able to come back to another way of regulating industry just after we had sort of defeated the idea of socialism in Australia and globally. So this ideological element was really big. And most importantly, I think they could use that. That was the sort of passionate side of it that they could use rather than the mercenary side to raise a lot of money for the kind of think tanks, for the climate sceptics to be funded. And as one of the well-known American sceptics, Myron Ebel, said to me, you know, the thing that, that we figured out was that we had to challenge the climate science in a way that was not 
involved with self-interest because if we didn't, the people who were trying to do something about climate science would have the moral imperative of, on their side. They would have the high ground and we would sound like we were just arguing a mercenary case. So that ideology, I think, was re a really important element to it. Yes, it seemed like it added that emotive element that really was very galvanising for a number of people who would naturally respond to it um, and perhaps were primed in that way or already had pre-existing political or ideological views that swayed to that side. One of the fascinating parts of this story is the fact that Australia is no small player really in its in terms of its role in emissions. And one of the things that um, has always been a feature is that other uh, parties, particularly Kyoto, thought that Australia, as well as other developed countries, needed to pull their weight. And Australia being a, an emissions heavy country and also a mining heavy country, and certainly that was something Howard continued to push was, you know, mining is the backbone of uh, the Australian economy. That was the the lines that you would hear, um, you know, that it was almost a, a existential threat to Australia's GDP, to Australia's prosperity. So you draw out in the book beautifully the discussions around Australia's role and the way that Australia sees itself versus how other countries see Australia's role in combating climate change. One particular statistic I wanted to highlight, um, and we're still talking in this uh, the same period the, uh, before Kyoto was negotiated, that, quote, Australia was bulldozing more forests and woodlands for farming and mining than any other nation in the developed world. For 20 years from 1990, Australia began clearing on average 416,000 hectares of forest each year, the rough equivalent of 47 rugby fields every hour of every day, wiping out large numbers of native animals, birds and reptiles. Now that's one quote, one statistic, and of course land clearing is part of the picture of climate change, but it was also and has also played a key role in Australia's story at this global stage at every climate negotiation. And it seems that this deal that was done at Kyoto around land clearing and the accounting trickery that it's been called has still, you know, had relevance even up until last year. So I just wanted to ask when you were looking at this from a very big picture and looking at how Australia has conducted itself overall and I guess on a global stage in terms of the way that it's negotiated and the way that Europe may look at it as not being in good faith, do you think that that has also contributed to the way that Australia dug itself deeply into its position, that it just you know, it started off at Kyoto with a really disingenuous method of accounting and a target that was much lower than everyone else. And I guess it seems to have continued to have a legacy past what one might have expected. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that really interested me was that there were deep divisions within the government about the Kyoto target, because the head of the Department of Environment at the time, Roger Beale, was very keen to, for Australia to kind of play a better role. But there was huge pushback from the Department of Prime Minister, the, from Howard's office itself, as well as, of course, from the Department of Industry that was supporting uh, the resources industries. And I think what happened originally was the idea to use land clearing in Australia's favour. There was a positive motivation for that at, at the beginning. And that positive motivation from people like the Department of Environment was that they could see this extraordinary level of land clearing that was going on, especially in Queensland, but also New South Wales which was, of course, adding to Australia's greenhouse emissions. They wanted that to be wound back, and they thought that using the climate change argument as part of our emissions reduction program would be useful. But I think what happened, this is my interpretation, is that there were people in the Prime Minister's office and 
on the negotiating team who basically thought of it as a way of saying, okay, well, if we do that, that means that we don't have to cut our emissions from the heavily emitting energy and resources sectors. So that really became uh, this terrible contradiction. And I quote uh, Bill Hare, who was then with Greenpeace and is now very well-regarded uh, scientist on carbon emissions and Australia's carbon emission footprint. He said he was at Kyoto at the time these negotiations happened, and he was utterly devastated by the final result, which was that Australia did come away with a really weak target because he said by using the land clearing stuff, the using the land clearing cause, it meant that Australia fundamentally did not have to address this issue that we had one of the most heavily emitting per head electricity systems in the developed world. We didn't actually have to make a big effort to meet the target. And so that meant we essentially wasted the next decade in not beginning to take the kind of actions that we could have. So on the one hand, there was a, you know, a, a positive and genuine attempt to do something about land clearing and the emissions from land clearing by some people within the government. But I do think it was also exploited by other members in the, in the government to get a very weak target for Australia out of Kyoto, and you rightly said, Amy, we then <laughs> continued at other climate conferences to push for weak targets. Yeah, it's really interesting because that ties in with the US as well in terms of not only John Howard and his close relationship with George W. Bush Jr., which you mentioned there and go into detail about in terms of their relationship, the meeting that they had where John Howard is purported to have agreed verbally to not ratify Kyoto or not really fully commit to it and to side on the side of the US, which at the time wanted to step away from Kyoto and not pursue the promises that they had made at the time. But there are also these other links as well that you highlight whereby they acknowledged, well, actually it needs to be ratified, it needs to be put into legislation or made formal. And so in Australia, you say that uh, Hugh Morgan's man, Ray Evans, who we've just been talking about as well, sought to collaborate with the Cooler Heads Coalition and uh, seized on this opportunity to try and kill the Kyoto Protocol before it could be ratified. We then also saw some major developments in Australia in terms of other climate science sceptic groups being created, including the Lavoisier Group. What was the role at this time of all these groups and, and this coalition of influential people here in Australia who have links back to some of these US groups? And were they, I guess, the deciding influencer over John Howard when he made the captain's call to not ratify Kyoto to shock his minister and public servants and make that announcement on World Environment Day? Look, I think they were very influential in why Australia did not ratify Kyoto. I think there were two things at play here. There were quite a number of US companies and US politicians on the conservative side, but also on the Democrat side, who really did not want Kyoto ratified. They did not want the Kyoto Protocol to survive. And Australia was seen as one of the key American allies who could form the wedge of getting countries to kill off Kyoto. I think that was the aim of some of the industry groups and um, some certainly key people in the Bush administration like Dick Cheney. And what happened was there was, as you rightly say, I go into some depth about the links between the groups in America that wanted to kill Kyoto and how they found common cause with the Australian groups and use the same arguments and the same materials and the same lobbying techniques. And what happened was really interesting because Australia did 
side with the US. It, Howard did side with George Bush and agreed not to ratify, even though some of his own ministerial colleagues and certainly the head of the department wanted Kyoto ratified. And what happened was that they were really hoping that if Australia didn't ratify, that Japan wouldn't ratify. Mm. And if a big power like Japan didn't ratify, then that would have killed Kyoto. But ironically, what they forgot was within the Japanese political climate and cultural climate, Kyoto, of course, had been negotiated in the city of Kyoto. And the Japanese came under enormous pressure within their own country. And people would wear these sort of badges saying, let's honour Kyoto, don't dishonour Kyoto. And in the end, it was the Japanese prime minister trying to lobby Howard at the last minute to ratify Kyoto. Don't back Bush. Keep with Kyoto. Keep Kyoto alive. But it tells you something that Howard, despite our massive trade with Japan at the time, including trade of iron ore and coal, decided to back Bush and Mm. rejected the lobbying from the Japanese prime minister as well as the lobbying within his own country, and backed Bush. And I do think that Hugh Morgan, Ray Evans, all those people were highly influential in that debate. Oh, it's so fascinating, uh, particularly because we're talking about a time where Australia was obviously backing the US in another arena as well with the wars over in Iraq and Afghanistan later on after Kyoto. So I'd love to jump ahead a little bit. We might just touch on one other thing that I wanted to from this particular time frame, which was this wonderful uh, career public servant, Roger Beale, who you mentioned before. I mean, there it sounds like there were a number of people, including some so-called called wet liberals within the Liberal Party, those more progressive liberals who actually wanted action on climate change, probably not to the same extent as someone on on the Labor side, but that they did at least accept the climate science, just as uh, Roger Beale did as a public servant, who is obviously in a highly influential role. I'd love to get a sense from you about these well-meaning and, I guess, accepting of the science people within the government, both at the public servant level and also at that ministerial level. And the fact that I guess we do see them exit stage right at one point. Um, And they kind of do seem quite defeated because Roger Beale did end up drafting an idea for an emissions trading scheme, which we often forget about. We always assume it's a a Rudd type of proposal, but this was actually, in fact, it went to cabinet under the Howard government as one way that they might have concrete actions towards climate change, given that they weren't going to ratify Kyoto. So I just wondered if you could take us through that little episode because I felt like it was a really interesting point. Yeah, I think people forget that it was during the Howard era, but through the essentially huge policy work of people like Roger Beale, who was head of the department, and his first minister, Robert Hill, that, you know, Australia did get the first renewable energy scheme, even though it was very small scale, they managed to get it through the Howard government. They did the first, you know, really big attempts at pushing back at land clearing, at this mass land clearing, working with the Queensland government and the New South Wales government. They did, and especially Roger Beale, tried to, for the first time, push this idea with some Treasury officials of an emissions trading scheme. And the story of how he was defeated on that was really interesting because that's when you saw the top industry heavy guys in this Mm. country at the time. And they were all guys, you know, literally meeting in rooms, working out ways to defeat Beale and to knock off this scheme. And I do go through that in some detail at the book. And you're right, it was after that, that Beale himself felt hugely defeated. And he, especially because he'd also lost the argument 
with Howard on the ratification of Kyoto and he walks away. But uh, as a little postscript to that, Amy, when the book came out, because I did spend a lot of time talking with Roger Beale for the book because he was a mine of information, he sent me this really sad email, I thought. It made me feel mm. sad uh, because I think he had devoted his life to the climate change issue, especially his latter years as a, as a senior public servant. And he said something like, um, thank you so much for telling the sad history of our efforts on climate change, full stop a shame on my generation mm. and yeah that was really sad to me because not only Roger Beale but quite a number of senior public servants who came after him not to mention some quite brave politicians did the same thing of try to fight this fight and I think that's one of the reasons I wrote this book because I ended up sitting across talking to senior public servants or politicians who honestly looked like they had post-traumatic stress syndrome after going through <laughs> the battle to try and get climate change policy up in this country and the forces working to defeat that. And I just thought that is a fascinating story. That is a fascinating history that has not been pulled together. Yeah. I'm so glad you did because <laughs> reading that I had a lot of um, empathy for Buell and uh, it did make me think that some of these people who are pushing up against immeasurable pressures and also powerful forces, they really deserve almost a medal for the amount of persistence and resilience that would have been required mm -hmm. to even get that submission in front of cabinet and have the support of people like Ken Henry and others in Treasury, for example, it does sound like it was a pretty massive feat. And also, as you mentioned, that renewable energy scheme as well was pretty substantial for its time. One thing that's another, I guess, bookend to that chapter was the fact that you write in a coup de grace, Hugh Morgan supporters installed him as the new president of the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, very soon after Cabinet killed the emissions trading scheme. And interestingly, you go on later to say that the government had no serious alternative to reduce Australia's big greenhouse footprint and many in business knew it. What I found particularly interesting was your discussion of the Business Council and the fact that there were some rebel forces, so to speak, within the Business Council. And this is a council group made up of Australia's largest ASX listed companies. And it's usually, um, you know, the CEOs who engage at that level in the Business Council. And I was interested in those types of forces that you bring in there, not just the BCA, of course, um, there's a the mining lobby as well. But the Business Council of Australia does play a substantial role and has played one a substantial role for a very long time in these debates. So I, yeah, I did want to ask about looking at the conventional business groups that exist around this issue around this time that we're talking about when Rudd's coming into power, because it seems like they start to play a substantial role too. Yeah, and the fact that after Beale was defeated on the emissions trading scheme, the Business Council went and put Hugh Morgan in as head of the council, it tells you a lot. It tells you that, you know, the big companies, the big banks, the big mining companies, as you say, that essentially made up the Business Council at the time, certainly the ones that had the sway, had just thought, either they totally agreed with Hugh or even if they didn't, that they were going to go with the flow. They were going to go with Howard's view that we could keep developing our coal, we could keep developing our gas, that we didn't have to substantially shift our own energy footprint either inside the country or as an exporter. And in a way... That was, if you like, the high point of the Howard government's energy policy as Australia as the undisputed exporter of coal and gas and the future was bright. And, of course, the deep irony was that what defeated that image was not really anything that was happening within Cabinet 
or even for that matter, originally within the population. It was big things happening in the environment. It was, you know, the big drought that came that really, really knocked Howard. And suddenly he found the whole country was talking about climate change, seriously, you know. And it is very interesting following this through because, as you know, at the end of the book, a similar thing happens with Scott Morrison where he wants to ignore climate change, where he wants to steady the ship again, get back to Australia as essentially being unbridled in its ability to export fossil fuels. And what happens are the black summer bushfires. And to me, that was so interesting that it was like reality caught up with Australia in the last year of the Howard government. Yes, it seems like there are these crises that occur throughout the book that have these massive shifts in attitude or in policy or both, including, as you say, the millennium drought, Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, which, as you say, Howard acknowledged um, as having quite a substantial role in terms of this broader awareness of climate change as being an urgent issue that needs to be dealt with immediately. But there was also, as you say, later on, the global financial crisis put a a spanner in the works, so to speak, in Kevin Rudd's plans. And similarly, as you say, the Black Saturday bushfires is another example. I want to touch on the Rudd-Gillard era because it also interestingly brings up these connections between the US and Australia, particularly um, between the LNP and the US, and some key players who, some are still here, some aren't. Um, Corey Bernardi, Senator from South Australia, is no longer in Parliament, but he does feature, as does Barnaby Joyce, who does currently um, feature in Australian politics still. So I wanted to, to talk about this really key period because it takes centre stage, it seems, like although the global financial crisis was also pretty significant, climate change was something that stuck to the leadership battles and to the reputation and legacy of Kevin Rudd, of Julia Gillard, of Malcolm Turnbull and of Tony Abbott. And when you think of them, you think of emissions trading, you think of um, carbon pollution reduction scheme, you think about the carbon tax, quote unquote. This was something that really took centre stage for so many years and it also did seem to bring down a number of leaders. So I just wanted to ask about that because you mentioned before at the start of our conversation the fact that the electorate thought Kevin Rudd's going to come in Climate change will be obviously dealt with, we'll have effective action and emissions trading scheme of some kind, and we'll go to Copenhagen and maybe there'll be a deal and we'll progress things and it'll become more of a non-issue. As you show in this book, that's not what happened. So what did happen with Rudd particularly and Senator Penny Wong, who was his right-hand person during this very tumultuous period, because it was something that he staked his reputation on, that Malcolm Turnbull also staked his reputation on. And in some ways, Julia Gillard did when she said there would be no tax and Tony Abbott decided to come in there and call it a tax. Yeah, well, I think certainly the Rudd period, you see the way the backlash came from industry and key elements within both political parties, interestingly, not only within the coalition, although they were the bigger players, but also from some within the Labour Party. There was a real feeling that this was a line in the sand and the fossil fuel industry in Australia not only the local industry, but the industry that worked on a global scale, you know, the extratas and the Peabody coals and all this. This was a line in the sand and they really, really wanted to stop it. And as you say, what is kind of laid out in the book is, again, this subterranean movement that goes on between Australia and the US with some of the key think tanks, the key players, the key climate skeptics going back and forth between Washington and Australia and proselytizing to and lobbying 
hugely to get these bills defeated. And our old friend Ray Evans, who had been so critical to trying to defeat Australia's ratification of Kyoto, he emerges once again as a really big force working with people like Corey Bernardi within the Liberal Party to make sure that the Liberal Party did not help Rudd get this over the line. And so you see two things playing out here. You see the enormous lobbying efforts and threats against the Rudd government from various fossil fuel industries. And there's some, as you would have seen, Amy, mm. there's some incredibly colourful quotes from people like Greg Combay, who was a yes. Labor minister at the side as, at the time, assisting Penny Wong, laying out the kind of heavying that he was getting from the fossil fuel companies over Rudd's proposals. Paralleling that at exactly the same time, people like Corey Bernardi are working within the Liberal Party to essentially bring down Malcolm Turnbull. They say it was to bring down his policy of supporting an emissions trading scheme, the price on carbon pollution. Uh, but they knew that really meant bringing down Turnbull himself. And behind them, once again, Hugh Morgan, Ray Evans, that whole group of people. And I reported a lot of that at the time, reported a lot of those brawls at the time for Four Corners and interviewed a lot of the players at the time. And it was really, really powerful stuff. And I spoke to, you know, people like some of the scientists like Tim Flannery about that period and the chief scientist at the time, Ian Chubb. And honestly, what they recalled, which is what I also recalled, was this period was one of the most toxic that I remember in Australian mm. politics. It was really, really tough. If you were a scientist, if you were a public servant, if you were a politician who tried to support this kind of legislation. And as I say, there were internal forces working in the Labor Party against it, but most seriously within the coalition. Yes, it's really interesting. I mean, reading this back, it certainly does trigger so many memories for me and I'm sure for anyone who does read this book because you do feel like you're transported back to a very, you know, tumultuous period in our history. And you reminded me of uh, Federal Secretary of the AWU, the Australian Workers' Union, Paul Howes, uh, as well as Martin Ferguson, who I'd actually forgotten about, and a number of others, including, of course, those that you talk about in the media as well as having some role to play in terms of our public conversation about this and the fact that Andrew Bolt also with his columns played a role in this period. And I know that Kevin Rudd at the time, but also since then and very much more recently, has talked about the role of the Murdoch press, particularly obviously News Corporation is one of them and Sky News more recently. But what are your thoughts having been across this and been a journalist at the time for other news organisations and also looked at these connections between all the key players, was the media also playing a key role in disseminating what was going on in terms of the messaging and the language and the the key kind of talking points that a lot of the climate sceptics and also big business were saying? Do you think that the media had a role and played a key role? An absolutely key role. And I remember talking to Penny Wong about this for the book and she would just recall this sort of sick feeling, you know, every morning at 5 or 6 a.m. she would be woken to, you know, the front page of the Australian, the front page of the Daily Telegraph, another sort of story about how the carbon pollution reduction scheme or carbon pricing you know, was going to kill this industry, kill that industry. Labor would put these thousands of people out of work. This was just absolutely relentless. And I think even though, you know, I myself worked for the ABC during some of this time, I do remember that these front pages 
would have an enormous influence on all the reporters, including the ABC reporters, who would feel obliged then to run that on the morning news, to run it on the evening news. And so this all became, a, you know, a battle about how much Kevin Rudd was under political siege on this, that or the other, or how much Penny Wong or Greg Combe was under siege, rather than what the actual issue was about, what the climate science was telling us, what the necessary move to a cleaner economy was going to take. All that got kind of blown away by this toxic political atmosphere and, you know, honestly, looking back on it, I don't think the media played a great role at all, including, mm. obviously, the Murdoch media. And there were some people like Andrew Bob that stood out. Um, Alan Jones, of course, who's stood out even more so. His attacks on scientists, I think, were really quite shocking in some ways. But one of the things that absolutely struck me reading something that Hugh Morgan had written at this time when Malcolm Turnbull was finally, of course, overturned in a, in a party coup and his leadership was brought down over this issue, essentially. He wrote this speech for the supporters of the Lavoisier group that you mentioned before, one of the leading climate sceptic groups in Australia at the time, talking about that Turnbull's defeat and the defeat of this carbon pollution reduction scheme was the end of green despotism in Australia. It was this incredibly over-the-top response and the absolute glee that Morgan felt at the destruction of this policy and the demise of Turnbull. Mm. It was just fascinating to read the kind of raw triumphalism in it. A lot of the time it seems like there's this use of emotive or strong language, but then also at times when you were talking about some of the electricity generators and the pressure that they were putting on, a lot of it seemed highly reactionary and that on the face of it, it seems like there is a lot of jumping to conclusions, a lot of looking at the worst potential outcome instead of what the actual proposal was, which was quite measured. You know, the example you give about agriculture actually not even being included, although in the future down the track, you know, maybe being included if it was shown to be, you know, an okay thing to do, that that was picked up on and, and run by the nationals and, you know, doing all these kind of roadshows around the nation talking to farmers, um, you know, about the expensive lamb roasts that they were going to not be able to afford or sell. And um, another thing that, uh, that came up in this period was also the language that seemed to come out. And you, you mentioned earlier that you sat down with Myron Ebel and talked to him about what was going on in Washington and that there was a cap and trade bill over there that they were trying to kill off. And interestingly, he said that he put out a simple message. He said, if you want to fight this stuff, just remember it's a tax, it's a tax. Just keep repeating that, it's a tax. I mean, this sounds particularly familiar um, and maybe a little bit traumatising for some people to hear being said again. Yeah. But are we being not too paranoid in thinking there is a clear kind of similarity in the approaches? Oh, there's an absolute similarity. Not only that, but some of the key people like Corey Bernardi were over in Washington uh, meeting with some of the big Republican players working to defeat this climate legislation on Capitol Hill. And Myron Ebel managed to get Cory Bernardi personal meetings with the lead Republican in the Senate who was fighting the bill and the lead person in the House who was fighting the bill. So no, I, I don't think it's being paranoid at all. I think there was absolute communication back and forth between Washington and Canberra about how to defeat this bill, the kind of language that was being used, why that language was being used, and how it was all about simplifying it as a tax issue and a job loss issue. And mm. in that way, you did not have to talk about the science, you did not have to talk about the hard work it would take for Australia to transform its very carbon intensive economy. Um, and that 
as I say, you know, by the time you get to 2019, 2020 in the book, you realize what an enormous amount of time we wasted in mm. Australia on these terrible fights when if we had listened to what the science was saying, if we had tried to fashion policy the way some of the key people who were in the public service, who were in public life, who were in the community movements were advising, we would be so far ahead of the game now uh, rather than still debating whether we are going to accept the Paris target of you know, zero emissions by 2050. Absolutely. It did make me think there were clear minds and clear heads at various points, although they didn't last all that long in the sense of their influence. But there were people who were saying, well, we accept the science, that we want to create evidence-based policy based on science, that we're going to take a measured approach, um, not a particularly radical approach, or maybe not the um, level that some people wanted, at the time, but they wanted to at least put something in place. And I remember reading that about the ETS was just, let's just get something in there first. Both the times that something was proposed, it was, let's just try and, you know, get something in there that everyone can agree on to find some level of compromise. That obviously did not happen, but it did make me think now that we're in a pandemic and we are listening to scientists and doctors and uh, making decisions based on public health advice in general, although of course that doesn't stop people from very loudly disagreeing, it made me compare those two situations and to think that if this was taken as seriously as the COVID-19 pandemic, which is something that we feel very immediately because we can see cases daily, if it does spread throughout the community, we see the immediate effects of this situation. Unfortunately for climate change, Occasionally, we are confronted on a horrific scale with major bushfires. Some people see drought far more than others, depending on where you live in Australia uh, and what your profession is. So unfortunately for climate change, it seems like we'll get these wake-up calls, but we won't be living in this constant state of fearfulness about needing to take action. And that seems to be something that is lacking, unfortunately, in that situation compared to the one we find ourselves in. And I wondered if you'd been thinking about this in any depth around these two situations, which seem quite similar because they both are relying on science. They both have people arguing about science and which science is more accurate. But we seem to have been able to mobilise and take more action on one of them. Absolutely. I, and I have been thinking about that a lot. And that because the pandemic hit, basically, as I was writing the final chapters for the book. And it really struck me because it struck a whole lot of climate scientists. Look, we can take the necessary action that needed to happen on the pandemic. And people, political leaders could follow scientific advice on the pandemic. And why not? Why can't this happen on climate change? Now, to be fair, it's a lot more complicated on climate change. I think if you look at that pandemic, it has the same universal threat to the population, but as you rightly pointed out before, quite a number of the impacts are sort of further down the track and it's easier uh, to put them off to deal with them later. But I think fundamentally, there's two things going on here. One, we still have a lot of vested interests arguing against taking the urgent action that the scientists are recommending. And you, you only have to look at the Prime Minister's recent statements, putting out support plans for large gas expansion, expansion of gas fields in the Northern Territory and Queensland, to know that we're not really thinking yet that we do have to reduce to net zero by 2050. And that means deep cuts to emissions by 2030, not only for Australia, but for the rest of the world. And that will impact our gas exports as well as our coal exports. So I think there are the vested interests there. But I think also this takes a lot of thought, a lot of comprehension about the sort of jobs that will be lost and there will be job losses in the coal mining districts and in some of the other rural areas. But 
you also need to plan for the jobs that will be created and the industries that will be created. And that means Australian politicians and Australian business really have to come up to the mark. They really have to do things differently. And, you, you know, I think the last two decades of wasted time has left Australians in senior positions of power and influence almost incapable of taking that leap. And that's what I think is tragic. And at mm. the same time, we still have this political hostage taking over climate change. And you just saw it, of course, in the last couple of weeks when Scott Morrison managed to utter the words that maybe we will get to net zero emissions by 2050, preferably qualify, qualify, qualify. But even that qualified statement, of course, Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan, uh, Tony Abbott, all these people started coming out of the woodwork again. So, uh, you know, and what they say is that, okay, if you want to do this, just remember you've got a tiny, slim majority in the parliament, you know, we can cross the floor here, we can do this, we can threaten someone's pre-selection. You know, we're still, Amy, I think, trapped in these, uh, you know, terrible games on climate change, on this, you know, political game playing where vested interests can use politicians to get their point across rather than actually trying to you know plan policy on solid advice and taking the climate science into account such an excellent point to conclude the conversation it, it really reminds me of this uh, pertinent moment in the 2019 election where bill shorten i think was in a manufacturing outfit and was being grilled on his climate policy with chris bowen and journalists were asking well, what is the cost of your climate policy? How much is this going to cost? And those journalists were roundly praised for asking these you know, hard questions like, what have you costed your policy? What wasn't really prominent at the time was, well, what is the cost of not acting on climate change? What's the cost of actually going down the road that the Liberal National Party would prefer to go down? And also, what are the profits and benefits, economic benefits that can be made from the same climate policy that Labor was proposing? Clearly, it's not just all cost, no benefit either. And that was one of the things it was painful to watch from an argumentative level was to see Labor kind of flail around and not be able to respond with any strong argument back to these constant barrage of what's the cost questions. We seem to still be in that cycle, as you say, that we haven't really pushed out beyond that, that we can't get past what is the cost of doing something. And I wondered if you had any observations or remarks on on that and the other side of politics and how that has played out for them. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that there was no doubt in my mind that Bill Shorten's big mistake on climate policy in the last election was that he wasn't honest. And I know everyone will say, oh, that's politically naive. How could he be honest when he was under attack? And, you know, he would have lost this seat in Queensland, et cetera, et cetera. He lost those seats anyway. I think that we have to be able to say there will be job losses here. There will be job losses there. However, the other side of that is what jobs can we create? Australia is in this remarkable position where it has these fantastic renewable assets. We all know about them because ordinary Australians go and put panels on their roof at a rate of knots. We, you know, we're the mm. most panel-loving people <laughs> in the world just about. We love solar. And so much of that has been driven by ordinary Australians but who know in their bones that we do have remarkable assets when it comes to renewable energy. What we need to do is to marry that with policy and with business nows to firm up that power to ensure that the grid can work properly and much more excitingly 
to see then how we can power all these new industries and in, including an electric vehicle rollout in this country. But I think what happens is in the Labor Party, there's an absolute fear of offending particular unions, unions that are very financially important to the party and also who do the grassroots work in the seats in regional Australia, the seats they need to win, of offending them. And I know it's bloody hard to work with those people, to assure people that you know, there will be a just transition. It won't just be about throwing miners out of their jobs, but you have to do it and you have to do it honestly. Mm. And I know Greg Combay said that one of the big things when he was in that job was trying to do that, was trying to be honest, but at the same time say Australia has to change. And I think Scott Morrison, of course, refused to say that, did all the usual scaremongering tactics on that during the election. And what happened was Labor once again was kind of terrified by that rather than trying to take it on. I thought that was a one of the big failings of Labor in the election. And once again, for me, was an absolute low point in the discussion of climate policy in Australia. And I think I make that clear in the book. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Just finally, now that we are under a Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, you've also just talked about there his position on the net zero by 2050 Paris endpoint or target. Of course, we don't have any clear way or strategy set out as to how we might get to 2050. But one thing you did note in the book, and it was very striking to me, is the fact that really we are back to the future. We've just had a almost another John Howard strategy in the sense that we'll have to acknowledge the climate science is there. We won't outwardly deny it, at least. We'll give some kind of credence or mild acknowledgement to the science, but still try and, you know, go on the path that we want to, that won't affect Australia's economy, that won't, you know, negatively impact us. And you point that out, that there's always this point that it needs to be no regrets, that nothing will affect Australia in a a severe way. Where is the Carbon Club now? Like it's not an official group or an official club that you, you know, become a member and get a card, but where are the vested interests? Where are they now? And are they just as influential as they have been? Is the Carbon Club still alive and well? I think elements of the Carbon Club are definitely alive and well. I think their power is uh, substantially reduced. And I think that's because It's interesting the way you see, for example, the Business Council changing. Before the last election, I know the Business Council was talking about uh, economy-wrecking targets that Labor wanted to cut emissions by. Post-election, the Business Council is now talking about net zero emissions by 2050. And there's a good reason for that. Australian business is moving You can see some of their big entrepreneurs like Mike Cannon-Brooks and even Twiggy Forrest making big investments and supporting renewable energy. You see the banks and especially some of the other big financial institutions, Macquarie Bank, ANZ Bank, talking about reducing their carbon risk getting into renewable energy, the Commonwealth Bank talking about that it's interested in funding a battery backup for people's solar panels at home. So this is all changing really rapidly. The state governments are changing. Mm. I think where you see the Carbon Club most alive and well in Australia is you try and criticise or break down and analyse the gas industry here, the LNG export industry, whether it's Woodside, whether it's what Santos is doing in Narrabri, uh, whether it's what people are trying to do with the explorations in the Northern Territory, that's when the line in the sand gets drawn. That's when the pressure comes back on. So I think there is a sense still in this country that we have to defend the gas industries certainly in the Morrison government, there's a a very strong position that we have to defend the gas industry at all costs. 
and for a lot of people that we have to defend the coke and coal interests, the big coal mines that supply the steel mills. So I think there's a real reluctance to really shift at a federal level, but I do think the change in business, the change in the community and the change in the financial institutions is going to break that down. And most importantly, as we've seen, our big trading partners, the US, Japan, South Korea, China, even Europe, they are all moving ahead of us. And essentially, I think we're going to be forced to change whether we like it or not. Marion, congratulations on this book. It's a feat, I've got to say. Um, Mm. I'm so impressed with the forensic detail, as I said at the start of this, and also the brilliant and sharp analysis that you've brought to this story. It's certainly helped to crystallise my understanding of what's happened over such a long period of time and to see those patterns and those connections, which are not apparent at the time in any meaningful way sometimes. And it's um, been so valuable to understand those intricate connections and where power and influence has shifted things. So thank you so much for your time today. And also thank you very much for writing this book. Thanks so much, Amy. And uh, thank you for having me on your program. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.